Hello, hello, and welcome. This is Colin. Welcome back from your weekend. Uh, we're going to tackle a series of subjects today on the show. In the middle segment, we're going to talk about uh, Amazon workers, uh, their unionization effort in Alabama, but very specifically because it seems to be- have become the symbol of the oppressed Amazon worker, the whole issue of getting to go to the bathroom, or more specifically, not getting to go to the bathroom. Um, I think John Oliver said a number of years ago that... <laughs> <laughs> that that Amazon was like Michael Jackson. There were sort of three things you knew about the, each of them, and the third thing was the thing you wished you didn't know. Uh, and th- that's kind of the case. I mean, when you look at how Amazon workers are treated, about the cost, the human cost of getting these, you know, for the most part, not particularly urgent things to us uh, in an unbelievably timely fashion. You think, well, I should either shop differently or just tell Amazon, just, don't don't hurry so much. I'm a prime customer, but fine, you know. I can I can get that set of dishes two days later. But anyway, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk in the final segment about a topic that our first guest will probably think we shouldn't be talking about, and that is the Biden White House dogs. Um, although I wouldn't have minded if somebody had asked a really good dog question uh, at the press conference, which is, in fact, the first topic today. Uh, president, presidential press conferences, they're a little bit like the SATs. You know, the SATs mainly measure how good you are at taking SATs. You know, the, the, the main predictive value of an SAT is if you ever took another one, you'd have a pretty good idea of how you were going to do it. Press conferences, I don't know. I'm not really sure what they test for exactly. Um, leadership, not really. Uh, I mean, like Andrew Cuomo is arguably really good at press conferences. In fact, he was so good at press conferences last year that people thought he should be president. Uh, these things don't have anything to do with one another, but they are going to happen. And here to talk with us today about the fact that they do happen. And if they're going to happen, there's things that should and shouldn't uh, be part of them, is Dan Frumkin. Uh, Dan Frumkin is the editor of Press Watch, uh, an independent political media pr- criticism website at PressWatchers.org. He previously worked as a reporter, editor, and columnist at The Intercept, HuffPost, uh, Washington Post, and Neiman Foundation for Journalism uh, at Harvard. Dan Frumkin, wel- welcome to our show. Well, thank you, Colin. It's great to be here. And yes, I think it's absolutely wrong for you to waste any time talking about the White House dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We elect human beings. We want to know a few things about them, anyway. So okay, maybe a five-minute segment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's about what it's about. What it's going to be. So, um, <laughs> so before we begin uh, our our dissection of this press conference, let's uh, hear a little bit of what it sounded like. It's been abused from the time it came into being by an extreme way in the last twenty years. Let's deal with the abuse first. You're moving closer to eliminating the filibuster. Is that correct? I answered your question. You also just made some news by saying that you are going to run for re-election. I said that is my expectation. So is that a yes, that you are running for re-election? Look, I I don't know where you guys come from, man. I've never been able to travel. I'm a great respecter of fate. I've never been able to plan four and a half, three and a half years ahead for certain. And if if you do run, will Vice President Harris be on your ticket? I would fully expect that to be the case. She's doing a great job. She's a great partner. She's a great partner. And do you believe you'll be running against former President Trump? Oh, come on. I don't even think about it. I don't have, I have no idea. I have no idea whether it'll be a Republican Party. Do you? 
you know, when the press conferences are live, Dan, you have to drink every time he says, come on. But I, I don't think we have to do that uh, if we're just listening to it retrospectively. Um, but I think some of that, some of those questions did deserve a, come on. I mean, that particular well, I love that line, I don't know where you guys are coming from, was, <laughs> was just perfect. Because I think what that press conference revealed, and you were absolutely right in the introductory comments you made, press conferences are not, you know, the be all and end all of, of a presidency. They're, they're, they're all often overhyped. People have unrealistic expectations about them and so on. But this one was amazing because of the disconnect between what the press was asking about and what any normal person would actually want to know what the president's thoughts are. About. Yeah. And I think also it, it was rendered even more appalling in the sense that the run up to it had treated it as this. I mean, yes, he had waited longer than anybody since Calvin Coolidge or whatever. But particularly if you looked at Fox or something like that, the, the, the sense that that he was that he was delaying his first press conference was being treated on Fox like some kind of human rights violation. And, and, yeah. and the irony and, and was to be once, honest, I think there was some concern, you yeah. know, or some thought that potentially he might not be, you know, entirely with it in this press conference because he does have a, uh, you know, a sometimes inclination to speak in ways that are a little bit meandering and 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 sort of get lost in his in his uh, sentence structure. But <laughs> what it turned out was it was again it was the political reporters who turned out to be completely disconnected from reality. And you know, unlike, the, I mean, the consciousness of Trump was also extraordinary because here you had a guy who you know constantly operated his own reality, who was constantly lying, constantly required, constant fact-checking. And instead, uh, here was Biden basically seeming to be operating in a world that was much more like our own than the press's. And in fact, he had to fact-check the reporters several times who asked very misleading uh, questions based essentially on right-wing talking points that are just simply inaccurate. Yeah, I, I think I had a slightly more mixed reaction than you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't think that he completely escaped that whole question of, I mean, I, I think his disfluencies are more the result of having been a lifetime stutterer, having, you know, being a person who kind of struggles uh, and has struggled for a long time with that kind of thing and a tendency to blurt things out. I don't think it has much to do with being 78 years old or having had aneurysms in 1988 or what, any, anything like that. But I did think that, first of all, he seemed to have the most difficulty figuring out who he was supposed to call on. And he was looking at what seemed to be like, I don't know, some kind of cheesecake factory menu and just trying to find a name there. It was just taking a really long time. And and and, and additionally, I, the, the thing that bothered me the most, when he's asked the North Korea question, he looked at the podium the entire time. There are clearly notes there, and they don't want him going off script or doing a gaffe about a potentially nuclear arms standoff. So, I mean, th- there was that sense that he couldn't really look right out at them in the way that we maybe kind of want stylistically a president to do? On North Korea, fine. I mean, I'm actually, I mean, wouldn't you want the president to be very careful on, on something like North Korea? No, I want the president the flailing issues, around. I was, and... actually very, I was actually kind of impressed um, because in a lot of the other uh, places where he's spoken, his eyes were sort of squinched together and you could tell he was reading. And here he was actually quite wide open on a lot of these things. He mm-hmm. was, he was just, you were getting real Biden. You were, I felt like uh, he was communicating, you know, from the heart and uh, I, you know, and no, don't get me wrong. I have a lot of issues with, with Biden. Um, but I thought this press conference actually, you know, showed him at his best and, and precisely 
the the weird sort of inside baseball horse race questions that the press asked, I thought actually uh, added to the uh, the sense that he was trying to give out, which is, look, I'm just trying to get things done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that message came across very clearly. Yeah, sure, he fumbles here and there, but I, you know, to me, fumbles and uh, and gaffes are relevant when they show you something that you know you that has verisimilitude about the person. I would agree. Or reveals and, something. Yeah, and, and I don't think that, I don't think any of the, either of those revealed anything particularly bad about them. No, and the bar is set uh, comfortably at a comfortably low level if you don't <laughs> if you don't recommend injecting yourself with bleach or things like that uh you know right away you you have a higher than passing grade uh and and but but I think also you know I think one thing that we both agree on is the press they've got to be get better at this and you sort of wonder why you know I used to watch Trump and I would think why does he never pay a price for any of the things that he does or says? There's just like no consequences whatsoever unless right. you count the November election. But it seems like this, it's the same with the press. For example, it seems to me that they should get organized so that if somebody asks a question, you can't ask the same question 10 minutes later. I mean, I noticed in particular there were two reporters who had gone to the mm-hmm. re- gone to the border and found young children, you know, around nine years old and talked to them and maybe called the mothers or something. They asked nearly identical questions. So the second person clearly wanted to call attention to the fact that she, too, had done this. And, and mm-hmm. I thought that should cost you something you know, among your peers or maybe you don't get a good seat next time. I mean, it seems to me there ought to be something where... If you do stuff like that, that actually impedes the flow of useful information, you should pay a price. <laughs> I'd love to see that happen. But no, you're exactly right. They come in with their prepared questions. They don't actually listen to what he's saying. They don't follow up on each other in a, in a uh, really useful way. Uh, this is, but that's, that's always been the case with press conferences. They are almost by definition sort of places where people go and you know, stand up and, and, and show off with how smart they are by asking it. A question that, and, and in some cases, they're sent there by the editors, so it's not even their their choice. Um, so it would be a lot better if if they actually listened. But that's also, you know, a lot of interviews on, on television and newspapers work that way too. People just ask a bunch of questions uh, without actually listening to the answers. Right. I mean, that is a problem. Um, but it does seem to me that it's another argument for the interview over the press conference. I think that we project onto the press conference the notion that there's something sort of small d democratic about it. Everybody gets to ask a question. We're all going to ask questions. And the the most powerful man in the country or woman in the country is going to have to stand there and answer these questions in real time with no chance to prepare. This is going to be great. And there's something about it that is profoundly not great. And, and I really would rather see Biden sit down, you know, for a long interview with a good interviewer who was listening to the answers and following up. I assume you would, too. I absolutely no. There's no there's nothing, nothing like the, the sit down interview with a prepared interviewer who knows the topics and who and who listens and follows up. Absolutely. And that's always been the case. And so, in fact, I mean, in past presidencies, I've complained that the press conference is too easy for the president to use to to sort of uh, and run around the press court. That said, especially with this president right now, where where there most of the media opportunities have been very controlled. I think the idea of having, you know, give, of, of giving the, the, the public a chance through the press to ask questions and, on, you know, live, not tape. Seeing and seeing what his answers are, I think is is good. I think you get a variety. You know, you tend to get a variety of questions. Sometimes you get surprising questions. Uh, so, I mean, I think the press conference is an essential element of this. But 
honestly, uh, you know, what we needed was somebody to get up and say, <laughs> and ask the question that everybody wanted to know the answer to, which is, tell us how this ends, right? How does this, how do we, you know, the pandemic, how, you COVID? how do we get, how do we get out of here? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do you solve the problems with the vaccine distribution? When is it safe to start acting normally? You know, how, how, I mean, so, so it, it was, to me, it was just a terrible, terrible reflection on the, the, the bizarre obsessions of a, of a press court and a put it and particularly the worst people in the press court. These people are the most posturing, preening, uninformed people, <laughs> the people who cover the white house don't have any specialty other than the white house. And so, so instead of people coming and saying, I, you know, asking informed questions because they're beat reporters who know what their topics, know something about the topics, they're just trying to trying to sort of get in a lick here or there. I do think that part of the, that gets fed a little bit, though, Dan, by – like I went back and I watched some old uh, – God help me. I went, I went back and I watched some old Trump, Trump press conferences. And, <laughs> and, and like I think there was the one at the UN that I was particularly watching. And he clearly – he has no idea who he's calling on. Either he says – either he knows who he's calling on and he goes, you know, you know, I don't know, Mike Schmidt from the failing New York Times. He would actually do that. <laughs> he would identify the, the failing New York Times. Or he would go, you, you over there. And then he'd find out the guy was Kurdish. And then he'd call him Mr. Kurd because he was Kurdish. And I, I mean, it was, but, but the oddity of it was that, you know, you at least, because he had no idea who he was talking to and he didn't care, um, he, you did get a slightly more spontaneous kind of question. It seemed to me that that you know Biden was making the mistake of you know looking at that menu and then calling some on somebody that his staff told him to call on, and then you do pretty much typically get that high profile reporter who's doing all the things that that you're talking about. Well, I mean, you also have to keep in mind it was the COVID thing, so there weren't that many reporters in the room, and I think basically he he had a story, you know, like a like a professor would have a chart of who was in the room mm -hmm. and he and he just sort of picked people and they were i mean all the people there were the white house correspondents for major publications and major organizations so i mean he, he i don't think that's uh that's on him so the you know a counter argument to what we've been saying is well he kind of began before he started taking questions he began with kind of a covid update specifically mm -hmm. setting his vaccine goals blah 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 and another counter argument is i mean it it's it's right there in the cdc the old cdc playbook and other kinds of public health documents that in fact p elected political leaders are very poor spokespersons uh, about a pandemic you really do ultimately want a fauci type person who you know who only answers questions from a scientist uh, perspective. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, the whole theory is that that half the country is just, you know, reflexively going to disbelieve what an elected leader says about all this. And maybe maybe Biden isn't the right guy to tell us how all this ends. But that doesn't mean there aren't a lot of other questions. And I know that you, from reading your stuff that you you think there are a lot of other things that could have been asked about. Right. Well, first of all, let me go back to COVID. I mean, I think hearing from the president um, that, you know, it is too early to start taking off your masks and to acting like it's normal would have been hugely important. And, uh, and he did not mention that in his opening remarks. And I think that would have been very, very useful. Mm -hmm. um, you're right, on the details, I don't really care what he thinks. Mm -hmm. But uh, to your other point though, no, I think that there are a ton of other questions that reporters could have been asking. Again, because his, his media appearances thus far have been very, very focused and very uh, constrained, we don't really know a lot about. He hasn't been asked a lot of questions just about sort of how does the White House work, who's allowed, who, who do you talk to? I mean, I, one of my favorite things, you know, he always used to say that he was the last guy in the room with Obama. Well, who's the last guy in the room with him? You know, and 
And this administration has been using background, uh, you know, interviews and anonymous sources as much as as anybody. Why aren't he? Why isn't he letting people speak uh, for themselves? In fact, the whole government has been in a basically a a you know a, a fetal crouch for the last four years. Uh, people being afraid to say anything about what's going on in their offices. What about freeing people in their in, in the bureaucracy to actually talk about what the government's doing and what what what's being discussed and how what the various trade offs and issues are? And there's just a tremendous. There needed to be a tremendous change after Trump in terms of transparency. And I think that if journalists wanted to actually advocate for something, they should have been advocating for that. Although you could make the argument that, um, I mean, having we both watched a lot of presidencies come and go. And in the early stages, there does tend to be kind of a crouch, right? I mean, I remember it very specifically with Clinton, you know, who had, who had won uh, an election somewhat based on on his fluency in, in, in making public commentary and stuff like that. But, you know, as the Stephanopoulos kind of press operation came in, they, they initially saw the press very much as the enemy uh, and, and were very careful about who said what. And, and I mean, it takes a while, I think, even with somebody like Biden, who's been in politics forever, who's been in the Senate forever, who's been in the White House in the you know, secondary position for eight years. I think it takes still it takes a while for the people who work for that person to know what they can say, when they can say it, and when to go on the record. You are absolutely correct, except that people you almost never get out of that crouch if you go into it. <laughs> I completely understand why people would go into it, but I just don't see them coming out. And so it become that becomes the standard of transparency. And, um, and, and unless people basically say this is only for, until we get our sea legs, I, I really don't think that uh, that it, it's okay. Dan from let me just ask you a, la- a final question here, which is, and it, it's it's probably a question that that will be hard to answer. But one of the, the <laughs> well, I mean, not just hard to answer, just in the sense that I, I don't know how we ever get any resolution on this. But you know, one of the things that I don't know, I've been teaching about this for the first time in about three years, uh, and, and it strikes me when I teach that I, I think about it differently. But you know, we really have reached a point where there are these two competing and irreconcilable realities and everything kind of just gets run through the prism of one or the other of them. So there's there's a huge portion of the country that watched that press conference. I know because the email I get. Watched that press conference and said, see, he's like losing it. He's really old and he's demented and he can barely talk and he's fumbling and stumbling and there's something wrong with him and they're covering it up and that's why they didn't want to have this press conference in the first place because this guy, you know, is, uh, you know, a drooling idiot. Um, you know, and then there's like another segment of the country that watched it and went kind of as you're saying, you know, he he gave pretty credible, understandable answers. And, you know, most of them were pretty adult answers. I mean, talking about the filibuster, he basically said, you know, if you parse what he said, he's basically saying, well, he wouldn't mind seeing them go back to the talking filibuster. He also thinks because of his expertise, he can get things passed without trashing or radically reforming the filibuster. He'd like a chance to try to do it using his existing political skills, you know, and if it gets ridiculous then he'll be, we'd be willing to talk about the nuclear option. That's a really good answer. You mm-hmm. know, I, I think a lot of people saw that too. But, you know, really, you have this uh, this situation where people just take everything and they jam it into their pre-existing understanding of the situation as opposed to actually evaluating on its on its face. So, so uh, that's why I said this is going to be hard to answer. I mean, it doesn't really leave us with very much. No, it doesn't. And you're, you're, and you're right that we live in a climate where basically there are sort of two different media realities and and nothing there's no magic wand solution to that i just think that the you know my view is that the the media reality that actually conforms to actual reality uh needs to stop uh 
thinking that uh, they can just play, uh, you know, sort of false equivalence games. They need to basically advocate for the truth as assertively as this other, you know, the Fox News ecosystem is advocating for, for lies. And hopefully over time, uh, because the truth has evidence behind it, um, you know, more and more people will believe it. Also, I think reporters need to figure out why is this happening and report on, on what is it that's making people susceptible to just, you know, believing things that aren't true. So I think there's a lot of, of long-term slow solutions, but in the meantime, that's that is the reality we're, we're in. Yeah, I, I just I, I, one thing I had to sort of pursue this morning that a lot of this has to do with complex versus non-complex thinking. You know, I mean, to evaluate Biden's press conference, you really have to engage in some complex thinking. There are ways in which, because of his syntax, you kind of have to, you know, tease out what it is that he's really saying. You know, and some of the stuff that he's saying is a little bit subtle, is a little bit layered, isn't necessarily, you know, the words of a Bernie Sanders progressive or, or you know, a, a Barack Obama, you know, centrist. Um, it's, it's more than that. And people don't like thinking in complicated ways. And and we've now. I mean, very few people actually watched that whole press conference. (laughs) What they saw was the digested versions on their evening news or on cable news or on on, in the newspapers or whatever. So, and and I think that coverage, you know, came off as basically saying Biden sort of laid out his agenda and and. so I think, it, I think it all worked out okay. All right. Well, on, on that hopeful note, uh, Dan Frumkin is the editor of Press Watch, an independent political media criticism website at presswatchers.org. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. And uh, really nice talking to you. All right. So we'll take a break. We'll come back. And we're going to talk about Amazon. And it's going to make you not want to order anything for a while. Well, I got nothing against the press. They wouldn't print it. If it wasn't true If you want to know about the gay politician If you want to know how to drive your car If you want to know about the new sex position You know, I got a very interesting email during that last segment uh, from I won't say his, I won't say who it is, just in case he doesn't want me to. But it's somebody who handles media relations uh, for for Democratic elected officials, uh, and making the point: uh, reporters have very very low public policy expectations for Republicans. Uh, they do not seem to hold them as accountable. Reporters have told me this. Democrats are seen as more compassionate, hardworking, and intelligent on public policy, and they are often in charge. So reporters are harder on them. As, as I'm saying, somebody who handles media relations for Democrats. But it is kind of true that Republicans, because part of their central argument often is we don't like government and we don't think it's any good. You know, Reagan's famous line, one of the biggest lies is I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. Um, the is, Reporters are less likely to ask, ask them how to make government work better or why their government isn't working better because they've already declared a whole lack of interest in that topic. All right. We have to move over to uh, the issues of labor. Uh, and uh, joining us now is Ken Klippenstein, investigative reporter for The Intercept, focusing on national security. This isn't specifically a national security question. Uh, it's a little bit more about the packages that come to your door and what happens, what has to happen apparently or allegedly to make them get there so speedily. It turns out that workers uh, have to be put on a, an insane schedule uh, and punished if they don't follow it. So, um, so Ken Klippenstein, uh, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. So, so some of this is occasioned by the fact that there had been some reporting about the fact that uh, that Amazon workers uh, in, in this 
This time around, it's a little bit more about the drivers, uh, that because of the kind of schedule that they're kept to and the lack of brakes and the high performance standards uh, and the watchful eye of management, uh, that they don't have any time to go to the bathroom in any kind of conventional way, so they pee in bottles. Uh, And what was interesting about this was uh, the Amazon Twitter account kind of brushed that aside as an absurd statement. And I'll let you pick up the story from there. Yeah. So as you said, I normally cover national security, although, you know, these days reporters have to wear a lot of hats. Um, really, the reason I got into I, I reported on the story, which is outside of my beat, was because I was angered um, at a Amazon PR's uh, Twitter account's assertion that um, work, its workers do not, in fact, do this, you know, urinate in bottles, um, because I know that that had been reported in the past. Um, and so, you know, I put out feelers and started reaching out to people that work there. I mean, Amazon is a huge company. I figured it wouldn't take long to find people who'd experience this. And um, when I started reporting it, I thought it would have been a marginal practice that maybe, you know, you're an emergency and, and happens occasionally. What I found in interviews with over a dozen Amazon employees was that this happened constantly. Um, as one Amazon employee told me, um, he doesn't, uh, he's what's called a, de- a delivery associate. So he drives the packages to people's um, houses. And uh, he said that a day hasn't passed in months that he hasn't um, uh, urinated into a bottle just to be able to make these absolutely crushing uh, quotas that they have to make. Uh, you know, there's this impression that, oh, they're just doing this to save time so they can have more free time. No, the, what they told me again and again was they're doing this so they can meet the um, not just uh, stratospherically high uh, delivery quotas, but even higher ones under the coronavirus pandemic and uh, all the pressures therein. So I found um, internal documentation showing that management was well aware of this. It's not that um, Amazon PR or Amazon leader, Amazon's leadership generally just didn't know about this. Um, they formalized directives uh, that contain within them uh, punishments if you're caught leaving one of these bottles behind in your car. Um, so they clearly knew about it. And what's more, um, it wasn't just uh, the urination uh, that people were also defecating into bags to be able just to be able to save time to hit their quotas. As they told me, if you don't do these sorts of things, you're just not going to be able to, um, you know, hit the numbers that you need to hit to continue being employed. So it's really out of desperation that all this is happening and management is aware of it. It's a lie to say that they don't know that this is happening. Right. And and because they'll penalize you if you don't make the quota, you're damned if you do do and damned if you don't. Uh, and um, this is not, I mean, this time around, the conversation is about the drivers. Uh, and I think you're right that it has something to do with the pandemic. But as you say, this has been around this idea has been around before. Uh, and in 2019, John Oliver, who's emerging as one of America's greatest investigative journalists, uh, talked about this uh, in terms of the of the warehouse workers, the pickers uh, and people like that. Uh, he, uh, after saying he legally would have to say that Amazon denies that, it's, you know, that this is a problem and legally Amazon says that associates are allowed to use the toilet whenever needed. Uh, but here's John Oliver. But that simply doesn't square with many accounts from workers, both in news reports and many, many first-person testimonials on YouTube. If you go to the bathroom during your break, you're going to have to wait in line, and you're not going to make your numbers for that period, and you're going to have someone come and talk to you. If you're far away from the bathroom, it's going to take you a long time just to get there, use it, and get back. Now your rate has plummeted. Unless you really, really, really have to. Just hold it until you have your lunch break because it will mess up your rate and they will find any excuse to fire you. 
And that's just not a good system for multiple reasons, including the fact that when people shorten their time in the bathroom, they don't shorten the bathroom part, they shorten the hand-washing part. So the next time you order something online, it's probably safe to assume it's been packed by urine-soaked hands. So, Ken, this comes up against the backdrop of unionization at one of the big plants, one of the big warehouses. Um, explain how these two things connect to one another. Yeah, I mean, the conditions are so dire um, that people feel as though there's just nothing else they can do. I talked to several people that had burned out, just had to quit because they physically couldn't do it anymore. It was too taxing. There were women that told me they had gotten UTIs from, you know, uh, holding it in and not being able to go. I mean, there are health consequences uh, to these kind of things. And so this notion that it's just a few people, I mean, honestly, I thought it was a martial phenomenon. I thought, oh, well, it's not true that it doesn't happen. It happens perhaps not very commonly. But again, I spoke to over a dozen people and um, you know, while not everyone did it, you know, every day, um, everyone was certainly familiar with it enough that uh, they were telling me during meetings, management would regularly say, you know, don't leave these things in the car. Don't leave these bottles in the car. Um, it looks bad, that kind of thing. And it seemed to me that the concern was primarily not about, um, you know, the health or well-being of the employees or even the sanitation, but just the optics of it. Um, so uh, these these conditions, it's not surprising at all. I mean, I have to say uh, I'm sympathetic to uh, the plight of labor generally, but I didn't realize the extent to which these poor folks, um, you know, are, are made to do these, uh, frankly, inhumane things just to be able to make what is a modest paycheck. So, um, you know, I think that if Amazon so upset about this uh, unionization vote, there's probably a lot of things they could do to improve to make it so that people aren't forced to, because when you talk to these folks, they are not political radicals um, by and large. You know, these are, this is not Che Guevara. So for them to be uh, doing this union push, things have to be pretty bad. And that's, those are the conditions that unfortunately I think I found. The other part of this is, you know, that Amazon, you know, for the most part, rather than, I, I don't know, dealing with this either somewhat apologetically or we're going to try to do better. And they kind of have this in-your-face attitude. A lot of this starts a little bit from uh, Bernie Sanders uh, visiting uh, in Alabama. uh, And uh, one of the executives of Amazon uh, tweets uh, a taunt. So if you want to hear about a $15 an hour in healthcare, Senator Sanders will be speaking downtown. But if you want to make at least $15 an hour and have good healthcare, Amazon is hiring. A congressman named Mark Pocan replied via tweet, paying workers $15 an hour or doesn't make you a progressive workplace when you union bust and make workers urinate in water bottles. Uh, and Amazon on their Twitter account said, you don't really believe the peeing in the bottles thing, do you? If that were true, nobody would work for us. And this, Ken, seems to be part of, of an overall strategy that uh, there's a piece in Recode today, uh, comes from Bezos, the get into it, get get into dogfights with, with the senators themselves, whether it's Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, that, you know, it's almost as though Amazon feels big enough that they don't necessarily have to in, in any way uh, try to, to bow down or accommodate the concerns coming even from U.S. senators. Exactly. I actually just had a story about this um, right before I jumped on this call uh, in which uh, Amazon PR themselves are shocked and horrified at what's happening for a variety of reasons. Um, one of them, uh, which is that it's it's tarnishing Amazon's uh, brand and that's people that are you know handling the messaging and that kind of thing. Um, in fact, an Amazon engineer reported these tweets um, up the chain as a security issue, thinking that the account had been hacked because he believed that the um, tweets were so, quote, I'm quoting from his um, from the complaint that he filed with the um, uh, security team. He said it was, quote, 
unnecessarily antagonistic. And, you know, that's not an unreasonable <laughs> thing to conclude, to look at it and say, well, the point of PR is to advance the interest through messaging and, you know, image imagery and things like that of the corporation. And what they're doing is they're antagonizing, um, you mentioned Representative Pocan, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Bernie Sanders. Um, they were calling a report in the Guardian, quote, fiction. It's almost like something on the Trump playbook. Um, you know, the effect that all of that has, um, the rank and file that I've spoken to, even, even you know, adjacent or NPR, I think that this is a disaster. Um, Vox News reported um, last night that um, this is coming right from the top yep. from uh, CEO Jeff Bezos. And he's actually circumventing uh, the process they have in place to prevent these kind of uh, counter counterproductive um, uh, uh, messages going out. Yeah, I mean, you know, by contrast, we've seen some of the other digital giants when they get called on the carpet and they have to talk to Congress, you know, and, and so you get uh, Twitter, um, Facebook and Google in the person usually of their founders or CEOs. And there's at least a kind of crypto truckling attitude that they take. You know, I mean, they don't tell they don't tell spend the entire hearing telling members of Congress to blow it out their old wazoos. They at least sort of try to indicate because they don't want to get regulated. They try to indicate, you know, that that they're open to criticisms and they're doing the best they can. I mean, Amazon really seems to be in kind of a different category, maybe because they feel so big and maybe less in danger uh, of being regulated, but it's an almost Trumpian tone that they're taking. You know, get out of my way. I'm going to do. We're going to do exactly what we want to do. Uh, and it's hard. I mean, there's something called the Streisand effect, where you, when you deny something that's easily provable, you make the problem worse. That's exactly what they did with the peeing in bottles. And I guess the question is, the, uh, how will we measure the consequences? I assume the first place we're going to measure it is in Alabama, where I believe the voting ends today. Yeah, that's right. The voting ends today, it'll take a little while for them to count it out and release the results. But I think we'll see pretty quickly what the effects uh, of this PR campaign have been, because um, I, I imagine from the perspective of organized labor, they can't think of a better gift <laughs> to have fallen into their laps than uh, Amazon PR just face planning on all this stuff and enraging uh, a lot of people. Um, you know, it's massive hubris. I think the notion uh, is that you know, according to Vox's report, Bezos was mad that they're not being more aggressive and pushing back against what he perceives as unfair uh, coverage. Again, as you say, uh, very Trumpian. I agree with that as, uh, uh, assessment. Um, you know, it, it, the question, they have so much money. I mean, it's a it's over a trillion dollars. Bezos was the first trillionaire, at least on the books. Um, it may be that they have so much power that they're just able to um, get away with this kind of stuff. And that's what we're going to find out shortly. And I I'm just speculating, but I have to imagine that that's why this stuff is happening to begin with. Uh, it, this is the kind of behavior you see from uh, institutions or individuals that have not really had to face consequences or else they wouldn't do it. Um, and, you know, as you say, for the folks that he's picking on, like Warren and Sanders, these are very powerful individuals. These are senators um, that, you know, uh, in Sanders' case, he chairs the powerful budget committee uh, that can decide the kinds of things that could end up costing Amazon a lot of money. So it's really extraordinary that they're um, taking swings at them like this publicly. Yeah, and I think there are two ultimate consequences that could really redound very negatively for Amazon. One of them is, you know, labor itself has 
struggled with its own image for a really long time, at least dating back to, I'd say, the 1980s. And Reagan, in particular, began to kind of begin a process of union busting and kind of delegitimizing the labor movement. Uh, and you, you know, their numbers have waned over the decades. But, you know, you really can, I think, maybe ignite public's First of all, almost everybody has an Amazon driver coming up their driveway or over to their uh, front door stoop or something. You know, uh, these days, it's such a common experience. Amazon's so pervasive. So to look at that person and think that he or she might be, you know, crapping into a bag or peeing into a bottle because of these just Dickensian uh, working conditions, I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that gets people sympathizing with with labor movements, maybe in a way that they haven't for a long time. And and the other thing is, if, if I were running Amazon, I wouldn't want my customers thinking about stuff like this, you know, about what it takes in the warehouse, what it takes on the road to make the package come so fast. And I think they've succeeded in getting a protracted conversation about this guy. Yeah, it's the exact, um, you know, <laughs> perfect thing for the for the union vote. I mean, you've got Senator Sanders going down to Alabama um, this past week um, to try to drum up support uh, for the union vote. And now it's all over the press. I mean, virtually every major media outlet was covering these crazy tweets they were having and the whole debate over does this happen, does this not happen, because it's a very easy thing to fact check. So um, very strange self goal or own own goal in this in the situation. But I guess we'll see what what the consequences of that are if there are any. I guess we will indeed. Well, listen, uh, thanks very much for uh, helping us understand this thing better. Uh, it was a great reporting uh, in the, uh, the in the Intercept uh, on this as we watched this story unfold last week. Ken Klippenstein is an investigative reporter for the Intercept. Thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about dogs because, you know, we all need, you know, Dan Frumkin notwithstanding, we need to talk about dogs once in a while. All right, we're back. It's time for me to say some thank yous, starting with Kat Pastor. She's here uh, in the building. So am I. I've been back for a couple of weeks now. Um, and uh, she's the technical producer of the show. Uh, and uh, it's great to be able to be in proximity to her uh, and to wave at her and stuff like that. That's about all that really happens. She didn't even recognize me in the hallway today. She didn't know. I mean, I was masked and I had a baseball hat on. She may have thought I was, a, you know, an intruder. Um, so uh, anyway, good to be here uh, with Cat Pastor. Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, is the producer of this episode as well. And we've got all kinds of interesting stuff coming up for you this week. Uh, but uh, let's uh, – well, this is a moment of great pride for me. Um, we're going to talk about the White House dogs. I'm not proud that we're going to talk about the White House dogs, but I am proud about the fact that we are talking to uh, Rachel Treisman, uh, production assistant on NPR's uh, Digital News Desk. And the reason I'm proud is that Rachel was in – uh, the 2018 class at Yale that I'm teaching again for the first time now. We're, we're back in 2021 teaching that same seminar. But uh, and Rachel, you were like also you were like editor of the Yale Daily News, right? You were some you were like a big shot at the Yale Daily News. 
<laughs> Hi there. I can confirm the first part of that sentence. <laughs> I was the editor in chief. It's great yeah. to be here with you. It's great to be here with you too. Yeah. No, I've been thinking about you guys a lot because uh, we're kind of heading down the home stretch. It's the first time the class has happened since you guys took it. Uh, all right. Well, very excited Exciting. that you that you've landed uh, uh, with NPR. You're you already outranked me. Uh, so no. let's. Uh, so let's talk about this. So uh, remind people what happened. Basically, there was a little bit of a problem with one of the two dogs. Sure. So to start from the very beginning, the Bidens have two German Shepherds, Champ, who is 12, and Major, who is a three-year-old rescue. They arrived at the White House with a ton of fanfare at the beginning of this year. Earlier this month, we learned that Major was involved in an incident, uh, which the White House described as he was surprised by an unfamiliar person and reacted in a way that caused them a minor injury. Now, NBC News reported that what happened was he nipped the hand of a Secret Service agent, uh, but didn't break the skin and the agent was able to continue in working, uh, to continue working. Uh, regardless, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters at a March 9th briefing that the two dogs had been sent to the Biden family residence in Wilmington, Delaware, as part of a pre-planned stay while the First Lady was traveling. The following week, the president said on an interview with Good Morning America, he reiterated that, you know, that was an originally planned stay for them. He defended Major as a sweet dog who was just caught off guard, still adjusting to his new environment and had moved to act protectively. He also did say that Major was undergoing some extra training while in Delaware. Now, last week, at the beginning of last week, there was some chatter on the internet about whether the dogs had actually returned to the White House. A Reuters correspondent named Jeff Mason posted a photo to Twitter with sort of a dramatic evening shot um, where you could see the silhouette of a German Shepherd on a White House balcony. And again, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki confirmed on Wednesday that they had in fact returned. Although she did make sure to note that going forward, it won't be uncommon for the dogs and their owners to go back and forth to Delaware on occasion. All right. So let's actually hear uh, President Biden in his own words and in his own voice defending a major's honor on Good Morning America with George Stephanopoulos. You turn a corner and there's two people who don't know at all. And, you know, and, and they move and, and he, he moves to protect. But he is uh, he's a sweet dog. Eighty five percent of the people there love him. He just all he does is lick them and wag his tail. And you'll um, see him tonight. I'm going to see him tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so, Rachel, so pretend we're back in class. We used to talk about this stuff all the time. There's a way in which, you know, when we when we're dealing with a, a quote unquote new politician or a new leader and, you know, Biden really isn't new. He's been in the you know Senate since forever and been, he's been vice president before. But we're getting to know him uh, as uh, as president. And, and I, I do think, you know, I mean, Trump famously didn't have any pets. Um, there is a way in which. The, you know, even listening to him say that, you can sort of tell that he really loves this dog and, and you know, he wants the best for that situation. I mean, I think there's kind of a reason why we wind up talking about things like this. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so um, with, that, with that in mind, I would also just observe that it was kind of a good thing that it was a Secret Service agent because they're like supposed to be willing to give up their bodies for this, right? They're, they're supposed to be, <laughs> you're supposed to be willing to Fair jump. Point. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's like, hey, you signed up for this uh, and he didn't break the skin anyway. So, but this- right. I think it's important to acknowledge that everyone stressed it was a really minor injury, didn't require any further attention, um, and that agent was able to continue working. Right. Uh, on the other hand, you know, it's not great optics, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> you, you, you just get to the White House and you one of your dogs bites a Secret Service agent. Um, and and they, I guess um, that they have really, Rachel, emphasized the fact that the, this being a rescue dog, right? The first re- rescue mm-hmm. dog ever. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Sure. So he's not technically the first rescue dog to live there, but he is the first to go from a shelter to the White House. And that's something that a lot of people have been celebrating. As you mentioned before, there's been a lot of attention on the dogs, um, in part because there, for the last four years, there were no pets in the White House, which was sort of unusual, but also because of Major's sort of historic journey, uh, which a lot of people have been celebrating as a milestone. Right. I mean, I think we live in an age where that's a very popular term, rescue dog. People, I have a, a fairly new dog named Declan, and people ask me if he's a rescue dog. <laughs> and I say, well, the people we got him from didn't specifically say, please rescue us from this dog. But I, I think that that was kind of implied by their their attitude here. So um, mm-hmm. we should say that, I mean, you, you talked about uh, celebrating it. There was actually a d- dog duration. I don't even know if I know how to pronounce that <laughs> word. Tell us about the dog duration. Right. So uh, the Bidens adopted major from the Delaware Humane Association. They fostered him first as a puppy and then they adopted him in 2018. Uh, And that same shelter, the Delaware Humane Association, held a virtual celebration in January, the weekend before um, the presidential inauguration, and they called it the inauguration. And so it was part, part party, part fundraiser for that shelter. And reportedly, they raised over 200 thousand dollars, I think. And there were some 7,000 attendees on the live stream. So there seems to have been a lot of enthusiasm for that. So it's, so, it's you know, not only uh, does he have uh, an American rescue plan uh, for the people, uh, but he has a rescue plan uh, for the dogs uh, <laughs> as well. I think that's a good thing. Now, there's right. this phrase, I think you might have used the word retra- retraining. There was a little bit of retraining that went on for Major uh, during the three weeks that he was out, out of the White House. Do we know anything about what that means or is that top secret? We don't. We did not get any more details about what that looked like. Yeah, but we do, we just assume that that major is going to be a, a heck of a lot better here. Okay, we have to deal with <laughs> one other question here, Rachel, and I'm going to play a White House press secretary Jen Psaki uh, responding to a question asked by a reporter a few days ago after the dogs were sent to uh, Delaware. Uh, we heard all about the dogs. We were promised a White House cat. What happened to that? You heard all about dogs. We were promised a White House cat. What, what happened to that? Where is the cat? Today's a good day for the cat. Um, I don't have any update on the cat. We know the cat will break the Internet, uh, but I don't have any update on its status. All right. So do you know anything about the cat, Rachel? I don't. I was just going to I, I wanted to point out that there's a lot of expectation that it will go viral once it joins the family. But we don't know exactly when that will be. Yeah. So is this going to be like kind of one of your specialties for a while? Are you are you going to be like the go to person on the dogs and cats uh, at, at NPR? Oh, man. Only time will tell. But yeah, something tells me this will not be the last animal story. Uh, to come out of this administration. No, whenever there are animals, there are animal stories. And see, you're, exactly. you're too young to remember, but there was like this period of time, you know, when they when the Clintons came to the White House, Chelsea had this cat named Sox. Uh, mm-hmm. And Sox was around the entire time, I think. But Sox eventually... Um, <laughs> the entire Clinton domestic world disintegrated before our eyes. My recollection is that um, that Sox went to live with Betty Curry, who was the White House secretary to Clinton uh, and was whose name came up a lot during the, the Lewinsky scandal and the impeachment that followed. And there was kind of a sense that maybe, you know, maybe Sox knew too much and they had to you know, get him off the premises and have him go live with Betty. So so you never you never know. Well, Rachel Treesman, so right. so great, first of all, to hear your voice again, production assistant Likewise. on NPR 
requires a digital news desk uh, and a product of the uh, 21st Century American Journalism Seminar at Yale University. Thanks for being with us today. (laughs) Anytime. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. So as we wind up today, I want to sort of, I was sort of talking, starting to talk to to Dan uh, about this at the beginning, but I'll just say something at the end. So in the class that Rachel took, uh, when we do this class, we also have a class motto. So the class motto in 2018 was, every day something has to happen. Uh, And what that means, uh, what that meant at the time was that because Trump had emerged from the world of reality television, uh, he, he was from a world where his understanding was that things had to happen all the time. And if things didn't happen all the time, people wouldn't be as interested. Uh, And if people weren't as interested, then they wouldn't be talking about him all the time, which is what he wanted them to do. And it was very much, however, a product of, I mean, you think about reality television. Yeah, you know, somebody has to throw wine on somebody or every, you know, anyway. So that was our motto. And we would often understand things that happened in the Trump era through that lens. And, and our motto now is something different. Uh, it's we, I've just officialized it today, but it, it comes from one of our uh, students this year. And it's um, staying informed is hard work. Uh, or being informed is hard work, which means that there's just a lot to sift through these days. And there are so many multiple versions and layers of every story and and ways in which um, things are kind of played out differently depending on what medium you're reading in, what lean that medium has, stuff like that. Uh, and, uh, And as a result, you know, journalism, I think, is sort of failing a little bit to make stories. You should be able to understand a story pretty well, you know, in, in the space of about 10 minutes. And I don't think that's true anymore. It's really hard to be meaningfully informed. So anyway, thanks for listening today. I hope we meaningfully informed you uh, about Amazon and press conferences and dogs and cats. Silently for me.